Good morning. This is one of these mornings where I feel like all that has preceded has been so good that this sermon is like an afterthought. God's goodness to us has just been on display for the last half an hour. All I can add is the little dot, dot, dot at the end of the sentence. Today's uh, sermon passage comes from the book of 2 Kings. If you have a Bible, it's also printed inside the bulletin. 2 Kings chapter 13, beginning in verse 14. It says, Now Elisha had been suffering from the illness from which he died. Joash, king of Israel, went down to see him and wept over him. My father, my father, he cried, the chariots and horsemen of Israel. Elisha said, Get a bow and some arrows. And he did so. Take the bow in your hands, he said to the king of Israel. When he had taken it, Elisha put his hands on the king's hands. Open the east window, he said, and he opened it. Shoot! Elisha said, and he shot. The Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria, Elisha declared. You will completely destroy the Syrians at Aphek. Then he said, take the arrows, and the king took them. And Elisha told him, strike the ground. He struck it three times and stopped. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck the ground five or six times. Then you would have defeated Syria and completely destroyed it, but now you will defeat it only three times. Elisha died and was buried. Now Moabite raiders used to enter the country every spring, and once, while some Israelites were burying a man, suddenly they saw a band of raiders. So they threw the man's body into Elisha's tomb, and when the body touched Elisha's bones, the man came to life and stood up on his feet. Now Hazael, king of Syria, oppressed Israel throughout the reign of Jehoaz, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion and showed concern for them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and to this day he has been unwilling to destroy them or banish them from his presence. Father, please open your word to us today. Give us ears to hear and soft hearts to receive. Please calm my own heart, and just let me be a channel of your Holy Spirit this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. This is a peculiar story. <laughs> anytime, so anytime you jump into a story sort of halfway through a book, you've got two options. Uh, it's kind of, it's kind of like this. Have you ever walked into the living room and your spouse is watching a movie and it's about halfway through? And so you sit down on the couch and at that moment you have two choices to make. You can either sit through the rest of the movie not understanding what's going on or you can interrupt the movie with a series of questions. Now, now who's that? <laughs> now wait, wait why, why did she say that? Wait, where are they right now? Whoa, why would he do that? I will tell you if you, are a, if you are a young person or newly married, it is the second option you want. You need to understand how the movie is... Okay, maybe not. But in this situation, 
we need a little, we need some background on who these people are and why, why are these events, why are these events recorded? So here's some, uh, here's some background for us. Well, maybe not. Well, I don't know, maybe we're not going to get the background. It's just the right button, isn't it? I don't know. Yeah, it is on. It says we have full battery. Maybe, there you go. I don't know if I did that or Jake did that, but then. It was Jake, thank you. I'll just, I'll just do this, Jake, and you can <laughs> teamwork. All right, you guys know about Elisha. Elisha is a great prophet of the Old Testament. He's the representative of God to the people of Israel. Um, at this point in the story, he has had a prophetic ministry for about 60, 60 years. That's a long time to be a prophet. His spiritual predecessor, Elijah, his prophetic ministry was just about a quarter of that time. So Elisha has been in prophetic ministry for a long time. Uh, he is sort of the spiritual heir of this other great prophet named Elijah. Elijah, if you, if you don't know anything about him, you might have heard this idea of the man who was taken to heaven in the chariots and the horses of fire. And that was Elijah the prophet. And Elisha, this prophet we read about this morning, Elisha was there when Elijah was taken to heaven in the chariot of fire. And at the moment when he saw Elijah taken up into heaven, Elisha the prophet said, my father, my father, the chariot and horsemen of Israel. And Elisha received a double blessing. I'm not quite sure what that means, but uh, he has had this 60-year ministry. Elisha performs all kinds of miracles. Some of them are a little unusual. He's the one who made the axe head float, and he found the poison mushrooms in the stew, and so there's lots of miracles that he has performed. At one point, Elisha's fame is so great that even Naaman, who is a commander in the Syrian army, comes to Israel to see Elisha and get healed of leprosy. So Elisha is very well known. But now, now it is the end of his life. And this man who has healed other people, who has raised the dead, is himself sick with an illness. And that illness is terminal. And then we have this king. If you're reading the ESV, he's referred to as King Joash. There's other versions which spell that name differently. I'm just going to use Joash because I just used the ESV when I was studying for this sermon. But the point is, he was the 13th king of Israel. Now, you know how Israel's history went. Under Saul and David and Solomon, the 12 tribes lived in this sort of confederation of tribes. They were, they were under a united monarchy. But after Solomon died, 10 of the tribes broke away under a man named Jeroboam, and they formed this northern kingdom called Israel. And two of the tribes stayed together, and they formed the southern kingdom called Judah. Now, uh, we're going to have a little math question here. I always like to work a little math into my sermons. For you biblical scholars, here's the question. The answer to this question is going to be a number. So you'd be thinking of a number. In the northern kingdom of Israel... How many of their kings were good kings? Zero. Zero. That's right. You got it. That was it. Very good. You get, your, you get your math credit for today. None of the kings in the northern, northern kingdom of Israel were good. In the southern kingdom of Judah, there was kind of a mixed bag. Sometimes they'd get some kings who followed the Lord and walked in his ways, and other times they'd get kings who just were self-serving. But in the northern kingdom, they were all bad. Even a king like Jehu, who started out sort of doing a 
a, a good thing by overthrowing the wicked king Ahab. Even Jehu doesn't stay true to the Lord. So all of them are bad, and uh, Joash is a king of Israel, so therefore he is bad. Okay, he's not a good king. All right, that's, 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 called a lo- that's a logical syllogism there. Yes, all right. Joash was not a good king. What evil did he do? What is it that made him bad? Okay, so what is it that made him bad? We can read this in verse 11. Look at that. All right. All right, verse 11. Verse 11 says, uh, He also did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He did not depart from all the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin, but he walked in them. Well, what was the sin of Jeroboam? Essentially, the sin of Jeroboam was idolatry. Now, there's a couple different types of idolatry. One form of idolatry is the worship of a false god. And this certainly happened in Israel's history, where they, we, we were introduced to the worship of Baal and so forth. And, you know, in my life, it plays out when I take anything that isn't God and I raise it up to the level of God. There's that form of idolatry. Something in my life becomes so important, it becomes so meaningful, I elevate it to the status of being a God in my life. There's that form of idolatry. But the sin of Jeroboam, at least to my understanding, my reading of this is a little bit different from that. See, this other way that you can be an idolater is to be a false worshiper of the true God. You can be a false worshiper of a true God. Jeroboam, way back in the day, seemed to recognize that the Lord was the one true God, but he refused to worship God in the way that God had commanded. Jeroboam said, hey, uh, uh, yeah, all right. you don't need to go all the way down to Jerusalem to offer sacrifices, even though that's what God had commanded them to do. You can offer sacrifices right here in Samaria, right? Because he doesn't, I, I don't want you going down to Jerusalem because then I might not have control over you. This is what Jeroboam is thinking. Even though God has commanded us to worship him in a certain way, Jeroboam did not take God seriously, and therefore he worships the true God, but in a false way. We recognize, we sometimes recognize the Lord is God, but I cannot be bothered to worship him properly. And this kind of idolatry has been around since Cain and Abel. Remember Genesis 4. What what does Cain do? He offers an inferior sacrifice. He recognizes, okay, I recognize there is a God. It's, yes, I believe in in God. Well, do you take him seriously? Well, not really. No. That's the sin of Jeroboam. Joash walked in the sins of Jeroboam. He did not take God seriously. And yet, even though he didn't seem to take God seriously, here he is coming to visit the great prophet Elisha as Elisha is sick and dying. In fact, it even says Joash wept over him. So this is some evidence of good, I guess, in in this person. But he sees Elisha, and King Joash cries out, My father, my father, the chariots of Israel and its horsemen. I think we've heard that phrase before. This is exactly what Elisha said when Elijah was taken to heaven. Now King Joash is saying this, I think as a form of tribute. Uh, as a form. He's paying his respects to the dying prophet. But Joash perhaps also realizes that the real strength of Israel is not in its military power. The real strength of the nation is not in its military power. It's in the presence of God in that nation. And God was represented through this prophet Elisha. In fact, militarily speaking... The Lord had just delivered Israel from another battle with the Syrians, but they kind of escaped by the skin of their teeth. Because if you look back in verse 7, it says that after they delivered, that after they were delivered, the Israelite army was reduced to just 50 horsemen, 10 chariots, and then 10,000 footmen. That's not much of an army. 10 chariots. 
Maybe it's with some desperation that Joash comes to Elisha. Maybe he's saying, hey, militarily speaking, we're not doing so well, so I will turn to, this, to, the, to God through his prophet. Now, what happens? Elisha says to the king, take a bow and arrows. So he took the bow and arrows, and then he says, draw the bow. And then Elisha laid his hands on the king's hands, and he said, open the east window. And Elisha says, shoot the arrow, and he shot. And then Elisha says, this is the Lord's arrow of victory, the arrow of victory over Syria. For you will fight with the Syrians at Aphek until you have made an end of them. I like to picture this scene. You got the young king. He's come to pay his respects to Elisha. And he's got his quiver of arrows, and he's got his bow. And uh, Elisha says, hey, I want you to take a, a bow and an arrow. And I'm going you know, to shoot it out the window. And maybe Joash is thinking, what is going on here? I came to pay my respects to this dying old man. And now he's saying, hey, all right, get the arrows, get the bow. I'm put my hands on your hand. We're going to shoot some arrows out the window. Like, what is going on here? And then you've got Elisha, who it says is sick and dying. So you imagine he's raising himself off of his sick bed and his hands. He's an old man, his trembling hands. And he places them right on the king's hands to shoot this arrow. What is the point of all this? Last week, uh, Jalen and I went to a gun class. Is Jalen here? There he is. All right, Jalen and I went to this gun class last weekend. We spent all day out in the hot sun learning to shoot guns, proper technique and and all of this. And I learned a couple things from that gun class. First thing I learned, this is just a, a tip for you. <laughs> if you ever find yourself in a gunfight, it's really Jalen you want in your corner and not me. <laughs> I mean, wouldn't you say that's true? I was looking at your patterns and I was looking at mine and I'm thinking, hmm, Edwards couldn't hit the broad side of a barn. But so but that's the first thing I learned. But the second thing, the second thing that struck me about this class, our, our instructor, he was really good. We had a really good instructor. And uh, at one point, he comes along, and he put his hands on my hands. And he said, you've got to hold the weapon this way in order to affect the most accurate shot. And I was thinking, I'm preaching about this in two weeks. And I, I was going to tell the guy that, but he seemed to be in kind of a hurry. So I didn't. <laughs> but that's, that's, I thought, this is what's happening. He puts his hands on my hands so that I know how to shoot accurately. Now, Elisha puts his hands on the king's hands, but I don't think it was because Elisha was trying to show the king how to shoot accurately. Presumably, the king knew how to shoot a bow and arrow better than some old dying prophet. So why is this thing about the hands? Elisha puts his hands on the king's hands to signify that in all his battles, the king should look to God for his strength and his deliverance. Look to God, consider your own hands not sufficient for the battle, but go forth in full dependence upon divine aid. Praise be to the Lord my rock, who trains my hands for war, my fingers for battle. He is my loving God and my fortress. He is my stronghold. He is my deliverer. He is my shield. In him I will take refuge. Some of you might feel like you are under attack from the enemy. like the Syrians were encamped around Israel. You feel like the enemy is encamped around you. There are sins in your life that you just can't seem to shake. The enemy has been telling you lies this week. He's been telling you that you're not worthy, that you're not good enough, you're not capable enough, that you're a fraud, you're not a real Christian. He's telling you the future is frightening and scary 
and maybe not even worth it. But we can stand here this morning and I can say to the enemy, yes, you can come against me, but can you come against the Lord Jesus Christ upon whom I have built my life and upon whom I stand? <laughs> See, it's the, Elisha said, it's the Lord's arrow of victory. It's not my arrow of victory. It's not yours either, by the way. It's the Lord's arrow of victory. He has already, he, he's already won. We sang that this morning, didn't we? We already sang it. He has won the victory. The Lord's arrow of victory, right? And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me, for I am his. Bought with the precious blood of Christ. All right, now notice this. Elisha has made it very clear. There's a connection between the arrows and the military strike against Syria. Actually, Joash would have picked up on this symbolism right away because in his time, one of the ways that a king declares war on an enemy is to go to an open window that faces your enemy and shoot in that direction. That was a commonly accepted symbol at the time. Of how, here's how you declare war. You find an open window that faces your enemy, you shoot in that direction. So Joash should have understood the symbolism here. He knew there's a connection between the arrows and God's deliverance. And yet, verse 18... Elisha said, take the arrows, and he took them. And he said to the king of Israel, strike the ground with them. And he struck three times and stopped. Now, I'm just going to take a minute here and say, what does it mean by strike the arrows? Because the first few times I read this, I had the wrong picture in my head. There's two ways this phrase, strike the arrows, strike something, gets used in Hebrew. The first one is how I thought it was, which is like the king takes the arrows and he just whacks the ground with them. And I thought, oh, that must be what it's talking about. That's kind of strange. But actually, as I looked into this, most of the biblical commentaries say this phrase, strike the arrows, means you still continue to shoot and the arrows will strike the ground. In other words, Elisha is saying to him, continue to do what we just did. You and I just did this together, my hands on your hands. Now I want you to do it. I want you to strike the ground with these arrows. I want you to pick up that quiver and continue to strike the ground. But uh, Joash doesn't do that. He does it a little bit, and then he stops. It's kind of a picture of half-hearted devotion. We've all seen this. One of your children commits some crime against the other. And you say, you need to apologize for that. So I walk the sibling over, and I say, I want you to say sorry to your sister. <clears throat> sorry. Okay, I guess that was an apology. Right? It was kind of half-hearted apology. Maybe you need to do that again, right? This is, this is Joash. I can just picture Joash with his arrow. He's just not taking it very seriously. Oh, shoot more arrows? Okay. There's one more. Is that good enough? Or maybe he notices. Maybe he senses Elisha is looking at him. All right, I'll shoot another one. He shoots one or two. This is a picture of half-hearted. It just stops. Joash thought that shooting these arrows was a small thing. Yet upon the shooting of these arrows hung victory or defeat for Israel. Sometimes we don't even know what responsibility lies on our smallest actions. I like what Spurgeon said. Maybe some people think that hearing the gospel is a small thing. But life and death and hell and worlds unknown may hang upon the preaching and hearing of a word. Or a Sunday school lesson or your testimony you know, maybe some people think something as simple as working in the church nursery is an insignificant thing. And yet, when you do that, you allow parents to sit and hear the sermon undistracted. 
And it could be that in the catching of a word in that sermon leads to eternal life. Right now, some of our members are downstairs teaching children's church. Who knows? Maybe this will be the day that one of those young children hears the gospel and invites the Lord into their heart and repents and receives salvation. We should be praying desperately for those moments. Everything we do is seasoned with holiness. We just sometimes don't think about it. Even sometimes trivial acts can take on great significance. But Joash, Joash stopped short. Why? And sometimes I stop short, don't we? I stop short in the Christian life. I stop short in prayer, in service. I got, but I got all these excuses for why I stop short. All right, here's my excuses. Well, all right, I don't want to be presumptive, okay? I don't want to ask God for too much. All right, fine. Uh, I, don't, I, I don't have the natural ability of somebody else. They're just so good at that. I, I don't have that ability. You know what the Lord has told me? When all of my natural abilities are gone, and the only thing left I have is the spiritual strength of God, then I will see greater works than these. How about this? Elisha didn't help me more. You know, he put his hands on my hands for that first arrow, and then he stopped. Why didn't he continue to help me in this? Some of us can do this Christian life as long as our, uh, our spiritual mentor or our accountability partner, or our pastor is right there with us, or this person who has led us to Christ has been with us, and now they're gone, and now I'm lost. I can't do it. I need my spiritual superintendent. Sometimes God just says, you've got to stand on your own two feet and shoot the arrows, and keep shooting until your arrows are gone. I wasn't in a shooting mood. I didn't feel like it. I, I, I just didn't feel like praying. Ah, I don't feel like praying. That's the time I had to pray twice as much, by the way. I didn't feel like praying. I don't want to get overexcited about this religion stuff. All right? I, live, I, I try to live a balanced life. A little bit of God, that's, that, that goes a long way, you know. Um, or how about this one? I don't think it will do any good. I've prayed about this before and nothing's happened. Uh, why do I continue to bother with this? Recently, I heard about a racehorse named <clears throat> Zippy Chippy. Isn't that a terrible name for a racehorse? I don't do, I don't, I'm not into horses, but I've heard of some famous horses. Man of War, or the one horse that was in the Kentucky Derby. We liked the name. What was his name? Cyclone Thunder or something. But this horse is called Zippy Chippy. There he is. <laughs> Isn't that a good-looking animal right there? That's Zippy Chippy. I tell you about Zippy Chippy. Zippy Chippy actually was descended from some of the greatest thoroughbred racers in history. He had racing in his blood, but Zippy Chippy went out and lost his first 12 races. And at that point, his owner said, forget it, this horse is a loser, and he sold him to another stable. So Zippy got a new stable and a new trainer and a new diet, and he just kept on losing. And after a while, the new owner said, forget it, Zipster, you stink. At a, as a, and, and so he puts, he puts Zippy Chippy out to pasture, basically retires him. Zippy Chippy, but once Zippy Chippy stopped racing, he started getting sick, despondent. See, racing was in his blood. So they brought Zippy Chippy out of retirement. And on September 10th, 2004, Zippy Chippy entered his 100th race having lost 99 races in a row. And he came in dead last. <laughs> and 
and he retired a loser. Oh, and a hundred. Zippy chippy. He retired a loser. What a terrible, what a terrible story. But you know what? Hey, you know what? He didn't stop. He just kept going. He just kept, he saw failure after failure after, and he just kept going because it was in his blood. It was who he was. It was who he was. But, but Joash stops. Joash stops. What is Elisha's response? Verse 19. Elisha is not happy about this stopping. The man of God was angry with him and said, you should have struck five or six times. Then you would have struck down Syria until you had made an end of it. But now you will strike down Syria only three times. See, Joash knew there was this connection between the arrows and the Lord's deliverance. But he timidly receives the prophet's invitation. What he should have done, he should have said, hey, give me that quiver. I'm going to shoot these arrows until the prophet tells me to stop. I'm going to call up I'm going to, whatever the equivalent of Amazon Prime is, and I'm going to get more arrows delivered, same-day delivery. I'm going to shoot all, if this represents the Lord's deliverance, give me all of it. But he doesn't, because he's a false worshiper of the true God. He doesn't take God seriously. Sometimes I wonder why I don't see more of God's power in my life. Joash only received a partial victory over Syria. Where's the power? Where's the power in my life? I came up with two reasons why I don't see God's power in my life, missing the power of God. Here's the first reason. That God's power actually works through weakness, and therefore I fail to recognize it as God's power. Maybe the sickness doesn't go away. Maybe that family situation that I've been praying for for years doesn't get any better. Maybe it actually gets worse. And I could look at that and I could say, well, God's not really at work. But actually, maybe your faith is getting stronger. Maybe you're walking with the Lord in ways that you never walked before. Maybe you are turning to him in desperation in ways that you would never have thought of. Maybe you're more committed in prayer than ever. So God's power is at work a lot of the times, and I just don't see it because he's not working in the way that I expect him to work. So that's one way that I miss the power of God. Now, the second way is a little harder for me to talk about. But sometimes we have to face the reality of the situation is that we sometimes miss the power of God because of limited devotion to God. And that's what's happening here. Limited devotion to God. We see this all throughout the history of Israel. Even once in a while, and they'd get a king, and you'd think, okay, this king finally gets it. He's going to turn the nation around. And just as you start to think that, now the king disobeys God, and the people disobey God, and then they're back in turmoil, and another nation comes to take them away. Sometimes what limits their experience, what limits my experience of God's life-giving power is my limited devotion to him. So that's not just something that Israel dealt with. That's something we all deal with. So is there any hope in a situation like that? I stop short all the time. My devotion to God is limited. Is there hope in this? When you're living in sin, you're living in misery that's caused by the sin of other people. When you fail, when you see other people that you love failing, when the enemy is encamped around you and your strength fails you, where's the hope? What's the source of hope there? The next section answers that question. Verse 20, so Elisha died and they buried him. Now that seems anticlimactic to me. That's it? Elisha died and they buried him? What about chariots of fire? What about being taken away to... I sometimes... Do you think Elisha maybe thought once in a while, 
I'm going to have a glorious exit as well. He saw Elijah go up in that chariot of fire, and somehow, whatever this means, Elisha received a double portion of the blessing. Elisha, if it was me, I'd have been thinking, God's got something special coming. <laughs> but no, he just gets sick and dies like everybody else. Okay, well, the end, I guess. No, not really. Verse four, uh, 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 next verse. Now, here we go. Here's this interesting account. Now, bands of Moabite raiders used to invade the land in the spring of the year, and once as a man was being buried, behold, a marauding band was seen. And the man was thrown into the grave of Elisha, and as soon as the man touched the bones of Elisha, he revived and stood on his feet. Don't you wish there were some more details here? <laughs> and then the biblical writer just moves on. Okay, wow, that's... Ah, oh, there's so many questions I have for heaven. I think this story is here to remind us of something. Our hope in what God can do is not limited to what he does today or next week or next year. No. Our hope in God is bigger than my failings and shortcomings. I may only see a partial victory, but my hope is that God will use his power to raise his people to new life. That's the hope that we have, that the story's not over. Elisha died and was buried. That's really not the end, is it? Your death is not the end of you. The end of the story is that God is going to raise you to new life. Now, that's great to have that hope, but what is the basis of that hope, people? How do you know that God is going to come through for the people of Israel? It's great to have hope on what is my hope founded. The answer is found in the final section of this, verses 22 and 23. Now, Hazael, king of Syria, Hazael, king of Syria, uh, oppressed Israel all the days of Jehoaz, but the Lord was gracious to them and had compassion on them, and he turned toward them because of his covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and would not destroy them, nor has he cast them from his presence until now. Yeah, it's the next one, Jake. Thank you. I had my slides out of order. I'm sorry about that. He has not cast them from his presence until now. I guess this phrase, until now, meant until, until this book was written. But what was going on in Israel's history when this was written? Israel was already destroyed. They were in exile. The southern kingdom of Judah had been conquered. They were also in exile. Things were not looking good. And yet the writer says, no, God, has, God would not destroy them. He has not cast them from his presence until now. The Lord was unwilling to destroy his people, even in the midst of these circumstances. Even their unfaithfulness to him, God is going to remain faithful to them. Why? He had concern for them because of his promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that's an everlasting promise. Yeah, by the way, this is the first time, actually, I think this is the only time in the book of First and Second Kings that this promise is mentioned. God's promise to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And that becomes the basis of God's compassion and his grace that one day God is going to show his life-giving power by raising people, like this man, raising people to life out of death. It goes all the way back to Abram, Genesis 12. Now, you know, by the way, in the, by the end of the book of Joshua, we understand that Abram, there was nothing special about Abram. He was just another pagan living in the ancient Near East. And yet God comes to Abram and he says, go. Go from your country, your people, your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation. I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you and whoever curses you I will curse. And all the peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. That is the promise on which the future is resting, and it's an eternal promise. 
standing on the, you remember that song? Standing on the promises of Christ my King. Through eternal ages, let his praises ring. Glory, hallelujah, I will, I will shout and sing. Thank you. Shout and sing. Standing on the promises of God. Standing on the promises of God. That's what we're doing. And by the way, who takes responsibility for carrying out the promise? God does. God is the one who binds himself to fulfill the covenant. So even when we get to the end of the story and we say, what's the basis of my hope that even when I fall short, God will one day raise me from, from death to life? It's the promise that God made. When the enemies surround you, God's not done. When you have stopped short, God hasn't. When your devotion is limited, God's mercy reigns. The story isn't over. It's not over. 1 Corinthians 15. This is what Paul read this morning. 1 Corinthians 15. Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. You know, it's like when you bring the first tomatoes in from the garden. And you're so happy. Because you know there's more coming. This is the sign of things to come. Christ was raised. For as in Adam all died, what? So also in Christ we will be made alive. Each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, and then at his coming all of those who belong to Christ. Or Romans 8. Now, this, is just, this is just all over scripture. I consider that our present sufferings in this world are not worth comparing to the glory which will be revealed in us. For the creation itself waits in this eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed in the hope that creation itself will be liberated from bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. This promise is all over Scripture, and God will fulfill these promises. At the end of the last book of C.S. Lewis's Chronicles of Narnia, at the end of the seventh book, there's this scene where the children are talking to Aslan. Here's how the book ends. As he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and so beautiful, I cannot write them. And so for us, this is the end of the stories. And we can truly say that they lived happily ever after. But for them, for them, it was just the beginning of the real story. All their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. And now at last, they were beginning chapter one of that great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, and in which every chapter is better than the one before. The Bible just keeps us focused on that coming story again and again and again. Even in the dark times in our lives, even when those dark times are caused by my own rebellion and sin, God's power is still at work and the story has a glorious ending. That we will be raised through the power of Jesus Christ because, unlike Joash, Jesus never stopped. He never called a halt. He didn't leave the work half done. He set his face steadfast to go to Jerusalem, didn't he? When his time came, he didn't turn his back on us. When the nails were driven into his hands and feet, he didn't desert me. 
Even when he came to be forsaken by the Father, he didn't forsake me. He went through his work until he could say, it is finished. You hold me by my right hand, Lord. You guide me with your counsel, and afterward, you will take me into glory. My flesh and my heart may fail. I'm going to say will. My flesh and my heart will fail, but God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. Do you believe that? Do you want to believe it? The communion table is a sign to you that when we fall short, Jesus never did. And if you're willing to accept that free gift of his grace, free life everlasting, if you're willing to turn from sin and repent and trust him as Savior and King, then this table is open to you. Let this bread and the cup be reminders that God fulfills his promises. We're going to just take a minute and pray silently. And you can come down the center, take the bread and cup,